Welcome to the Shakespeare podcast by Klokriikka Teatern. In this podcast series, we wish to dive deep into the world of Shakespeare and understand more about his works, how to play them and how to view them in the 21st century. The history and characters of the Roman Empire were fairly familiar to Shakespeare's contemporaries. In this episode of the podcast, poet and Shakespeare researcher Nico Suominen opens up the tragedy of Julius Caesar to a modern-day audience. He explains the historical and philosophical background of the play, how the people could be against Julius Caesar and admire him at the same time. Or in Shakespeare's own words, he would be crowned. How that might change his nature? There's the question. Nico Suominen also talks about why Julius Caesar is a play about double standards and mansplaining, and why we as a society need Shakespeare's anti-heroism more than ever. Today's episode is a live recording from Klokriketeatans International Shakespeare Symposium earlier this fall. We hope you will enjoy it. I am Nico Suominen, Finnish poet, scholar and translator who specializes in classics and Shakespearean drama. I teach theater history and dramatic literature at Tampere University, theater work natu. And today I am here to talk to you about Shakespeare's Rome. In his foreword to Catiline, Ben Jonson, the friend and rival of Shakespeare, says the audience dislikes the oration of Cicero in his play because they read some pieces of it at school. The average theatre-goer in Shakespeare's day knew the history and literature of Rome by heart. Latin was for them what English is to us, the dominant world language with its omnipresent literary culture. In the Horton Library at Harvard University, One of the finest moments of my life took place, for there I held Ben Jonson's own signed copy of De Rerum Natura by Lucretius in my mortal hands. This ancient Roman poem, as the swerve by Stephen Greenblatt tells us, presented in Latin hexameters many of the ideas we now consider modern, providing the early moderns a vision of godless universe ruled by the laws of nature. Shakespeare's contemporaries had, therefore, at least in theory, access to such revolutionary ideas as atomism, evolution, and atheism. However, as this presentation shall demonstrate, we do not have to go as far as Lucretius to find examples of many ideas derived from the classical literature which have retained their relevancy in the contemporary discussions about Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. Geoffrey of Monmouth is responsible for the medieval allegation that Britain owed its name and the birth of its civilization to Brute, an imaginary grandson of Aeneas of Troy, who settled with his followers in the island more than 2,000 years before the Christian era. With notable exceptions of intellectuals such as William Camden, the historians of Shakespeare's day viewed this Trojan myth as factual history. Queen Elizabeth and James I were hailed as the heirs of that ancient house of Troy, and the Jacobian poets even called London by the name Troynovant or New Troy. 
As the readers of Virgil's Aeneid well know, Romans considered themselves as the descendants of Trojans. In effect, Shakespeare's England saw itself as Roman and as part of that same historical continuity. Sir Francis Walsingham, Queen Elizabeth's Secretary of State, writes, In the reading of histories, you have to apply them to these our times and states and see how they may be made serviceable to our age. In short, history was studied with an eye to its contemporary applications, the same way the theatre practitioners today approach Shakespeare's plays. You all did love him once, not without cause, says Mark Antony in his funeral oration to the late Caesar. Where the Roman place in Shakespeare's England suffered from being too familiar to their audiences, it seems to me from my personal experience that for most Finnish theatre practitioners and readers of Shakespeare, Julius Caesar for better or worse, remains a distant, if not altogether villainous, character. In the name of fairness, Antony, the man who praises Caesar here, is hardly what we would call an altruistic character witness. This eulogy comes from the man that would later order the assassination of Cicero and cast Rome to civil war for the infinite variety of Cleopatra. Let us therefore hear the man famed for his integrity, not only amongst his friends, but most importantly, amongst his enemies. I love him well, says Marcus Junius Brutus. I love him well, and Brutus is an honorable man. Even though the Senate formally declared him an enemy of Rome and a criminal, victorious Caesar held no grudges and sought no revenge. To his followers, he was a patriot who saved his beloved republic from the hands of the political dynasties. He could have abided by the law. He could have surrendered his arms to the Senate. He could have watched by the republic's fall to tyranny and chaos. But that was not Gaius Julius Caesar. He chose to cross Rubicon with a sword in his hand crushing the Pompeian elite. Caesar asked his countrymen to forget the old divisions, to join with him in building a new Rome, a Rome that would offer justice, peace and land to all its citizens, not just the privileged few. Indeed, Chaucer tells us in the Monk's Tale that Julius Caesar rose from humble bed to royal majesty. This line is based on the writings of Valerius Maximus and Suetonius, from whom we learn that although his family descended from God, the goddess Venus, Caesar grew up in Subura, a lower-class neighborhood, where his great rival Pompey had, thanks to his illustrious family, all the connections and all the money in the world. Caesar was the self-made aristocrat and the quintessential late bloomer of the ancient world. Pompey achieved greatness during his teens, whereas Caesar did not make a significant name for himself until he was into his 40s. Furthermore, Philemon Holland's translation of Suetonius tells us that Caesar was given to carnal pleasures, 
not only that he seduced many dames, but that in his youth he had served upon a bed of gold arrayed in purple as the concubine of King Nicomedes in the queen's place. Caesar was mocked throughout his life for being a feminine man, and in modern terminology we might describe him as bisexual or pansexual, not unlike Shakespeare. We also learn from Suetonius that when the poet Catullus had written slanderous poems about Caesar, he unexpectedly invited the poet to dinner on the very day on which Catullus apologized. Catullus was a friend of Cinna the poet, and they were both neoterics, that is, avant-garde poets of the day. Plutarch tells us that Caesar showed exceptional kindness to the poor and never humiliated others, even when he had the chance. And according to Suetonius, he was dearly loved by the immigrant population, the Gauls and Jews of Rome. There is a reason why Julius Caesar was known in the Middle Ages as one of the nine worthies, who were the personifications of the ideal chivalry. Ambition should be made of sterner stuff. The main source of Julius Caesar is Sir Thomas North's translation of Plutarch's Lives of the Noble Grecians and Romans, more specifically, the lives of Caesar and Brutus. The legacy of Plutarch to Shakespeare can be summed in this sentence. You can be against Julius Caesar and admire him all at the same time. If Julius Caesar was only a simplistic tyrant, a toga-clad Donald Trump, there would be no tragedy. He would be crowned. How that might change his nature? There's the question. The life of Brutus contains a fascinating passage in which Plutarch expresses his personal opinion about what could have been if there had been no conspiracy. None but Brutus after Caesar was meet to have such power as he had. And surely, in my opinion, I am persuaded that Brutus might indeed have come to have been the chiefest man of Rome, if he could have contented himself for a time to have been next unto Caesar, and to have suffered his glory and authority, which he had gotten by his great victories, to consume with time. In the life of Caesar, the dictator himself says that should he die prematurely, Brutus, for his virtue, deserved to rule. These are nothing but Plutarch's speculations, but let us keep in mind that this is Shakespeare's main source. It is sad in the light of the following passage from the life of Brutus that all the political power rested in the hands of men. The weak constitution of her body doth not suffer Portia to perform in show the valiant acts that we are able to do, Brutus tells in Plutarch's lives to his friend Asilius. But for courage and constant mind, she showed herself as stout in defense of her country as any of us. We also learn that Portia was excellently well seen in philosophy and that she is known for her noble courage and wisdom. Ironically enough, Plutarch uh, describes Caesar 
as lean, white, and soft-skinned, and often subject to headache and otherwise to the falling sickness, and says that he had sick body. To put it simply, if Portia, the woman who possessed all these heroic qualities, had been a man, the weak constitution of her body would not have been an insurmountable obstacle. In this context, one could even argue that Shakespeare's Julius Caesar is, among other things, a play about double standards and mansplaining. The Renaissance humanists believed that the dissemination of the wisdom of the classics would produce new generations of worthy public servants. Shakespeare himself is a product of this ideology. In his own words, knowledge is the wing wherewith we fly to heaven. Shakespeare identified himself as a poet, and Plutarch's famous essay, How the Young Man Should Study Poetry in Moralia, a collection of moral essays, lies at the very core of Renaissance pedagogy and poetics. A young man, Plutarch tells his readers in Moralia, may be convoyed by poetry into the realm of philosophy. This is the humanist notion of poetry's value as means to an end, namely creating virtuous human beings through its pleasantness. Renaissance pedagogy was essentially Plutarchian, and while this to us sounds didactic, this approach nonetheless contained a critical element. The reader who admires everything, Plutarch writes, and accommodates himself to everything, whose judgment, because of his preconceived opinion, is enthralled by the heroic names, will unwittingly become inclined to much that is base. One ought not timorously, or as though under the spell of religious dread in a holy place, to shiver with awe at everything and fall prostrate, but should rather acquire the habit of exclaiming with confidence, wrong and improper, no less than right and proper. To Plutarch, poets are essentially crypto-philosophers whose poetry asks as much critical approach as, say, Plato's dialogues. Furthermore, Plutarch believes that true poets are good men. For example, when a comparison of passages makes their contradictions evident, we must advocate the better side. So when poetry seems morally questionable, we should not be offended or angry at the poet, but with the words which are spoken in character. We can discern this critical approach and artistic ethos in Shakespeare's works. The English Renaissance poets served their rulers the same way Virgil, Horace, and Ovid had served the divine Augustus, creating a new imperial myth after the civil strife, after civil strife and bloodshed. While Shakespeare and his colleagues were not necessarily embodiments of civic virtue, I would like to argue that as followers of Roman poets, they were, in their own way, public servants who stride for the common good, bonum commune, true print and playhouse. Philosopher Thomas Hobbes, in his posthumously published Behemoth, argues that one of the main causes behind the English Civil War was that 
there were an exceeding number of men of the better sort that had been so educated as that in their youth, having read the books written by famous men of the ancient Grecian and Roman commonwealths concerning their polity and actions, in which books the popular government was extolled by the glorious name of liberty and monarchy disgraced by the name of tyranny. They became thereby in love with their forms of government, and out of these men were chosen the greatest part of the House of Commons, or if they were not the greatest part, yet by advantage of their eloquence, were always able to sway the rest. What Hobbes here retrospectively describes, to paraphrase, paraphrase the latter using the terminology of cultural theorist Raymond Williams, is the emergence of classical republicanism in early modern England. The story of how the humanist education, serving the interests of monarchy, inadvertently disseminated emergent ideas which ultimately challenged the dominant culture. These books, written by famous men of the ancient Grecian and Roman commonwealths, containing, as Hobbes argues, subversive potential, had not only found their readership, but also their way into the playhouses long before the political turmoil of the 1640s. Tellingly enough, even though Latin was practically a living language for the contemporaries of Shakespeare, we do find English translations of works such as Aristotle's Politics, Cicero's De Officis, and the Roman histories of Polybius and Tacitus available in print. Shakespeare's Julius Caesar is part of this historical process. These works of classical republicanism coexisted side by side with the monotonous reality of the hierarchical society. Exhortation to obedience, a widely preached sermon from the Book of Homilies, gives us a glimpse of that monotony. Where there is no right order, there reigns all abuse, carnal liberty, enormity, sin, and Babylonical confusion. Take away kings, princes, rulers, magistrates, judges, and such estates of God's order. No man shall ride or go by the highway unrobbed. No man shall sleep in his own house or bed unkilled. No man shall keep his wife, children, and possessions in quietness. All things shall be common, and there must needs follow all mischief and other destruction, both of souls, bodies, goods, and commonwealths. As much as we like to project our modern sensibilities to him, Shakespeare remains a product of religious and hierarchical culture. In the words of his Ulysses, take but degree away, untune that string, and hark what discord follows. A fixed social order was there normal. When it comes to the Renaissance theater, while I do not argue that the drama of Shakespeare and his contemporaries was political philosophy in disguise, there is no denying that the English Renaissance playwrights not only interacted with Roman history as a source for their dramatic works, but they also operated in an intellectual milieu fascinated by classical republicanism. The theatre practitioners of Shakespeare's day were familiar with Cicero's notion of officium, that is, communal duty. The first and chief grounds of architecture, published in 1563 by John Shute, 
gives us perhaps the most eloquent and articulate summary of how the early moderns understood their officium and therefore the communal nature of their actions. It is most rightly and excellently affirmed of Marcus Tullius Cicero in his first book, The Officis, that no man is born into this world for his private and singular will, because our country chiefly, partly our parents and partly our kinsfolk, do require, as it were, a duty of us and recompense for that which we have received, and like as the members of man's body be diverse in number and have according to their diversity, diverse and peculiar properties, so it is in a good and well-settled commonwealth, in which there is no office so base or handiwork so simple, which is not necessary and profitable for the same. And as the members of the body doing without impediments their natural duties, the whole body is in healthful harmony and able to perform all that belongs to the same. So it is in a public wheel, when all men in their calling do labor, not only for their own gain, but also for the profit and commodity of their country, which things when I, according to my small capacity, did weigh with myself, I was, as it were, stirred forward to do my duty under this my country, wherein I live and am a member. I argue that this is the perspective from which we should approach the poet playwrights who derive their sense of communal duty, not exclusively from the Roman ethos, but from the Protestant values described by Max Weber, who argues that the Reformation joined together the two ideas of a profession, the profession of fate and one's professional activity, so that mundane professions like that of a cobbler or theater practitioner were deemed to be dignified as any sacred calling. Despite its lack of university education, Shakespeare certainly understood the notions of Ciceronian officium and bonum commune, as we can safely infer from the famous passage extolling the virtuous Brutus. This was the noblest Roman of them all, says Antony. All the conspirators except he did that they did in envy of great Caesar. He only in a general honest thought and common good to all made one of them. In stark contrast to the egotism motivating Cassius and Casca, it is the civic awareness the general honest thought or ficium of the danger Caesar's autocracy poses to the well-being, that is, the common good to all, bonum commune, of his commonwealth, res publica, which ultimately drives Brutus to reluctant tyrannicide. I have always been scared of messiahs and hero worship. And in my opinion, although Shakespeare admires the integrity of Brutus, and although he sympathizes with the republican values motivating his stoic hero, Shakespeare himself is the least heroic writer in the Western canon. It is the liberty and freedom of the conspirators which leads to the lynching of Sinner the poet. Where his play deconstructs the heroism of Caesar, it is no less critical towards Brutus. Shakespeare takes political violence seriously, for he writes in a world that has experienced the horrors of civil war and tyranny. Unfortunately, none of us is immune to the dark allure of easy answers and charismatic leaders. And that is why we now 
need Shakespeare's anti-heroism more than ever. In Shakespeare's world, it is misleading to look at the Bible simply as the product of dominant culture and tool of its control. The scriptures were certainly both of those things for the early moderns, yet this foundational text, or at least its exegesis, was the force that erased the unified Christendom from the face of existence, creating the England of Shakespeare and paving the way for the death of absolute monarchy in the following centuries. The French wars of religion produced the philosophical genre of monarchomach treatises, which systematically argued for resistance against legitimately constituted political authority. In the most famous of these treatises, Vindicae contra Tyrannos, the justifications for the legitimate power of a prince over the people and of the people over the prince come from the classical sources and critical reading of the Bible. However, the politics of obedience, the discourse of voluntary servitude by Etienne de la Boutie, a poet and Montaigne's soulmate, takes these ideas even further. La Boutie writes in the same philosophical genre as the Monaco MacTreatises, but the argument here is not the justification of regicide or rebellion, but the revolutionary analysis of the status quo. If the early moderns, the contemporaries of Shakespeare, are aware of the options which exist for restructuring their society, why do they submit to the tyranny of their rulers? Laboiti praises the democratic Athens and the republican Rome, loathing the Persian despots and the Roman emperors, but makes only one reference to the Bible in his political treatise. When Samuel anointed Saul, the Israelites, Laboiti laments, without any compulsion or need, appointed a tyrant. The biblical notion of kingship has not only sanctified tyranny, but it has also given the Christian subjects a role model for passiveness. I can never read their history without becoming angered, Laboti writes, and even inhuman enough to find satisfaction in the many evils that befell the Israelites on this account. Laboti criticizes the monarchical form of res publica, which bears only cosmetic resemblance to its republican roots. It is hard to believe there is anything of commonwealth in a country where everything belongs to one master. In other words, Renaissance humanism has willingly served the monarchical interests, scavenged the classical past for academic niceties instead of social improvement, and effectually doomed the early modern society deeper into its stagnant pseudo-feudalism. The awareness of democracy and republicanism amongst the academic population has not changed the world. It is the early moderns themselves who are to blame for their misery. For, Laboti writes, a tyrant is automatically defeated if the country refuses to consent to its own enslavement. Laboti compares ruler to a colossus a lifeless theatrical simulacrum, arguing that the power wielded by the monarchical governments is essentially performative. The moment the subject realizes the reality of the situation, that the ruler is but a glorified actor, the passive resistance becomes a viable option in the theater of real politique. Laboiti explains to his readers 
that the ultimate reason to his contemporary's political apathy lies in the fact that the very love of liberty seems no longer natural. While the academic population acknowledges the options which exist for restructuring the political community, these ancient values and their radical possibilities do not materialize since the early modern people are themselves products of inherently static world. Laboiti then paints depressing but truthful image of his contemporary realities. The men born under the yoke and then nourished and reared in slavery are content without further effort to live in their native circumstance, unaware of any other state or rights and considering as quite natural the condition into which they were born. Mentality-wise, the only difference between the political submissiveness of the medievals and the classically educated early moderns lies in the fact that the latter possess somewhat more defined and dynamic picture of the pre-Christian world, yet this cosmetic knowledge fails to blossom into radical activism because the people themselves prefer the existing stability and the short-term pleasure its conservation provides. But despite these grim visions, Laboetie lives in a reality where radical change is possible. For as the existence of the Reformation proves, the emergent powers lying yet unactualized within the Latin and Greek texts have already found their way into the print-powered world, which is gradually deserting the medievalism of manuscripts and scholastic quiddities. Laboetie then goes even further than merely citing the antiquity for exemplary tales, by introducing the, a novel idea that even if liberty had perished from the world, men would invent it, for slavery has no satisfactions, no matter how well disguised. This is perhaps the strongest argument for early modern agency which manifests itself within the boundaries set by the contemporary mentality and material realities. One could compare the early modern society, the society of Shakespeare, to an abusive relationship which continues to exist since it brings stability, though the relationship itself is harmful. harmful. When people have lived long enough in an unhealthy environment, the abnormal normalizes and the normal starts to seem abnormal. The early moderns actively participate in a performance that is their society by accepting the theatricality of their politics as their reality. Instead of standing armies and police forces under their command, the rulers founding the legitimacy of their power on the divine right of kings merely possess show of force. Laboiti speaks of the sick body politic, further explaining that this intellectual dishonesty exists and thrives because of material reasons. When the point is reached, true big favors are little ones, that large profits or small are obtained under a tyrant, there are found almost as many people to whom tyranny seems advantageous as those to whom liberty would seem desirable. The early modern world is a vast network of profiteering cliques and nepotistic cabals, which provide their members a sense of liberty through material benefits. 
It is imperative to conserve the status quo so that the benefits keep flowing and the existing power structures may cement themselves and expand their sphere. In less theoretical language, one could argue that the early modern politics are merely, or were merely, organized crime in Renaissance costume. Laboiti has also something important to say about theater and entertainment. Plays, farces, spectacles, gladiators, strange beasts, medals, pictures, and other such opiates, these were for ancient peoples to bait towards slavery, the price of their liberty, the instruments of tyranny. By these practices and enticements, the ancient dictators so successfully lulled their subjects under the yoke that the stupidified peoples, fascinated by the pastimes and vain pleasures flashed before their eyes, learned subservience as naively, but not so creditably, as little children learn to read by looking at bright picture books. It is not that Shakespeare and his contemporaries lacked intelligence or were somehow incapable of imagining alternative worlds. Those who read Greek would have been familiar with the Persian debate about forms of government in Herodotus, not to speak of Utopia by Sir Thomas More, which was available in Latin and English, or the fact that Sir William Cecil drafted a bill in 1563, which proposed that the Privy Council rules England in case the Queen dies without an heir. It cannot be said that Shakespeare endorsed a modern notion of democracy. However, his contemporaries were aware of the idea that the common good was not totally dependent on the qualities and abilities of the ruler. To the contrary, the materialization of the common good was also dependent on the virtuous civic participation of the people as a whole. Shakespeare begins his play with the people rather than the politicians. As unpleasant as it is to admit, the true villain of Julius Caesar is the popular voice, the mob mentality that leads to herd behavior and tyranny. Victrix causa deis placuit, said Victa Catoni. Thank you so much for listening to the Shakespeare podcast by Klokrikketeatern and today's guest lecturer Niko Suominen, poet and Shakespeare researcher. This podcast is produced by me, Ida Henriksson, with sound by Christian E. Kolm. Please follow us on social media if you like and don't hesitate to write us and tell us what you'd like to hear more about in this podcast. We'll be back soon. Take care. <laughs>